Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number eight of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Diane Gallagher, who is vice president of value add programs at American Century Investments. She has more than 25 years of communications experience in the retirement industry at both American Century and J.P. Morgan. In her current role, she leads development of value-add content for financial advisors, plan sponsors, and individual investors on topics ranging from children and money to qualified retirement plan best practices. She also serves as a firm spokesperson on retirement investing and general investment education, and she chairs the American Century Retirement Plan Committee. On today's episode, we discuss the results and insights from American Century's eighth survey of retirement plan participants, which was conducted in early 2020 near the beginning of the global pandemic. Diane highlights the regrets that older participants express about not saving earlier, the positive and open attitudes participants have towards aggressively implemented automatic features, and the growing interest employees have in holistic advice and retirement income solutions. And be sure to listen to the end where Diane shares her experiences as the chair of American Century's Retirement Plan Committee and being named a defendant in an ERISA lawsuit focused on excessive fees and proprietary investments. Originally filed in 2016 and dismissed in 2019, the case was only the second one to go to trial since 2015. Most importantly, Diane describes the prudent processes that American Century followed that enabled them to decisively win that lawsuit and get the claims dismissed. It's a fascinating real-world look at why a strong governance process really matters for retirement fiduciaries. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast with Diane Gallagher from American Century. Diane Gallagher, thank you so much for being on the Fiduciary You podcast today. I'm excited for you to be a guest and for the audience to hear a lot of the interesting insights you're going to have. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, you are at American Century Investments and have been in the industry for, for quite a bit of time. I think you, you were at JP Morgan as well. And maybe just for listeners who may not be familiar with you, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but, but maybe frame up a little bit about kind of your background and what you do at American Century and, and kind of briefly how you got there. Great. Thanks so much. So I've actually worked with qualified retirement plans for 25 years. So I, I ran the participant communications and education department for a long time. So worked with plans of all sizes with respect to participant behavior and have done a number of research studies around what participants think in terms of saving for retirement with how they feel about their relationship with their employers, what they're looking for. So, so that's kind of my, my wheelhouse. So I have been at American Century this time around for about eight years and I work in our value add organization. So I work with a lot of our client facing teams to talk with their clients exactly about what we're talking about today about qualified retirement plans. So I also serve as the chair of our retirement committee. So I am a fiduciary for the American Century Plan, and I can share a little perspective about that role as well. I think that will be a very interesting part of our discussion when we get into it. I love, though, what you had mentioned about, you know, kind of the research and and how 
participants think. Often how we think impacts how we behave. One question I would ask is in your 25 years, like how do you think the evolution, how have you seen how retirement plan participants, how has that changed or evolved in terms of, you know, how Americans think about retirement? You know, I think that we've seen this pretty big pendulum swing. So when I started in this industry in the early 90s or so, I wrote a lot of communications to participants of plans across the country, telling them that we're adding funds are getting added to their plan. So at that point in time, it's how we ended up with plans getting to dozens and dozens of investment options. So that was that was a long period of time. And I, I felt like I did that, especially this time of year. You're right. I was doing a lot of on January 1, this is what's going to happen. And we, we kind of fell into that, you know, more must be better. So that was sort of, and what we, we found out is we were really listening. I think organizations were really listening to a vocal minority inside their companies who, who were very engaged investors who said, I want more choice. I want more choice. I want more choice. And then we get into this sort of analysis paralysis. There's that, that paradox of choice that, that so much behavioral science has proven that the more choices we give someone, the tougher it is for people to actually make a decision. That famously, you know, jam story, when you give people too many choices, they can't do it. So then we've kind of gone, you know, the other way where we're starting to say, you know what, maybe this use of defaults is, is a good solution. And I think what we found in all the research that we've done over these years, participants are so amenable to that. They're, they're looking for that nudge. nudge. So we found in our study, this has been consistent in the eight years we've done it, 80% of participants want at least a slight nudge from their employers. They want the bumpers set up. So if you start me at, you know, this default rate and default me into a target date solution, a balanced fund, a life cycle fund, whatever, you know, some sort of appropriate QDIA I will probably be okay. Like that casting of the net really does work. And what we've heard over and over from participants is that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the option that I can make choices if I need to. But if I do generally what you have laid out for me, that gives me a really good chance of being successful. And I think I think for a long time in our industry, and I think this is probably true of many industries, right? We do listen to you know, that vocal minority, the people who are who are, who, who want more control, who want more choices, and we don't like being in the hot seat. Nobody does, right? And so if someone's constantly in, you know, in your face saying, do this, or I don't want to do this, you kind of listen. But the reality is, we can't let perfect be the enemy of really good. And we're trying to get as many right. people as we can to a comfortable retirement. And the reality is, 90% of Americans in our study said, they view their 401k plan, their employer-sponsored retirement plan at work as one of the most important benefits they have. That is pretty compelling. So I think that that we have made some really good advancements in terms of, of, of taking what we know about how people have behaved, what their expectations are, and are trying to craft a really good solution to get them in a good place. I love what you say there. And we're a big fan of of not just automatic features at our firm, but, you know, I think implementing them aggressively, you're going to get people further faster. And a lot of the behavioral research and quite frankly, the survey we, we we're going to get into the the survey that American Century has conducted the past eight years. I think it's called the eighth survey of retirement plan participants and some really interesting, fascinating data. We have our own survey that we've we're getting ready to embark on the second iteration of it this year called Seeking Clarity. And, you know, it's funny what you had mentioned, We 68% of people last year expressed openness to automatic features. And so it seems like the, I love what you say there, that, you know, most people 
whether they say it or not, are, are willing to embrace and want their employers to, to help them, to nudge them. A lot of times, you know, we let the vocal minority kind of sway the, sway the decisions. Do you think as an industry, you know, I know that there's been, if, if you just look at, at over time and, and in my, my recent book, the fiduciary formula, you know, I cite kind of the shift over the past 10 to 15 years, really since PPA, how, you know, automatic features have, have, grown in adoption rates, but also in how they've been implemented. Do you, what do you think as an industry, do you think we've provided enough leadership? Do you think that we have maybe pushed our clients, plan sponsors hard enough around adopting these, these features? Have we fallen short? Or do you, do you think, uh, do you think we've done a good job? I think we are getting there. I do think there's a natural, I think for a lot of organizations, there's just a natural reluctance to be that, you know, progressive or aggressive in, in solutions especially when you're looking at large organizations where there are legacy plans and you know you're really trying to 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 make a set of sweeping you know changes but i think the 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 evidence is just extremely compelling so when you're looking at the practical evidence of what we're seeing in terms of opt out rates and, and adoption across the country but then you're looking at really the academic research and the use of defaults really is evident in so many other things outside of our of our industry so whether you're talking about curbside recycling, or, you know, there's so much discussion about organ donation, like there are just even conferences, for example, when we used to have conferences, when people used to go to, to conferences, you know, when you had, you know, menu decisions, what, right? What's, I mean, what's a conference? <laughs> exactly. Do you get exactly. in person? Is that an in-person yeah, thing? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But there, yeah. but there are many examples in which conference organizers would say, instead of checking the box, if you wanted a vegetarian meal, like going the other way, check the box if you want meat or chicken. And guess what? Most people have a vegetarian meal because we just tend to, we fall in line with those defaults. It's, it's just, it's just how, how, how we behave. It's very predictable. So I think it just takes some additional nudging from, from those of us who have access to the research and, and sharing our experiences with those plan sponsors who may be reluctant to move forward. So if you have a second for a quick story, my favorite plan sponsor story was at a conference in 2011 and we were talking about automatic enrollment and you know how you're, you're, you're in a crowd of people and there's someone you just know wants to say something like she was just itching in her chair to say something. So I called on her and I said, well, what do you, what do you want to share? And she shared this great story about implementing automatic enrollment inside her organization. So I think she had a few hundred employees, maybe three or 400, I don't, I don't recall, but they started automatic enrollment at 8% with 2% escalation to 20. And that remains the most aggressive formula I have heard in practice. You know, and she said, and right. there was a collective gasp from the other plan sponsors in the audience. And she just said, I just believe this is the right thing to do for our people. And I had, she had one person opt out. And, and when he came into her office, she handed him the opt out form. She said, you sign this, but please don't tell anyone else to do, don't, don't tell anyone else to do it because this is the right thing. He was the only person who opted out. She had one person. And she just said, someday, right. someday these people are going to retire and they're going to thank me. And it's the right thing to do. And I actually went to, I'm really going to date myself. I went to an industry conference in May of 1998, Josh, and I'll never forget the keynote speaker was a retired Department of Labor investigator. And he said, attempting to do the right thing for your people is always defensible. 
And I thought that was just really, Mm. really a good true North, you know? And I think, I think to plan sponsors who are reluctant, if, if their only hesitation is about backlash, I think there's a lot of evidence to refute it. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And that we have this feeling that people have a knowledge gap. You know, most people don't have a knowledge gap. In, in this day and age, there's, there's more information than we can even process at our fingertips. It's really a behavior gap. And I think you're right. The, the behavioral research, not just academically, which where a lot of these things start, right? They start with whether you look at a Richard Thaler or a Cass Sunderstein or, you know, Shlomo Bernardzi, right? If, if it starts in kind of the academic world and then kind of the, the, the business world takes that research and then essentially figures out a way to productize, implement it. But I, I think it's interesting when you look at the research and then you look at the real world, what actually happens. Like you said, the power of the defaults, it's, it's almost irrefutable. It's almost irrefutable. And it's interesting. There's a Dan Ariely, if you've heard of Dan Ariely, who is at Duke and, and wrote a book called Predictably Irrational. He talks about this restaurant consultant who, you know, has found that the way that you drive up, you drive up profit margins in restaurants is you put a really high priced entree on the menu. Even if nobody buys it, typically what it does, people won't buy the highest priced entree, but they'll buy the second highest priced entree. And, you know, I think some of the interesting innovations for just within the industry is now some of these curated kind of enrollment, you know, three-step ways to get enrolled. So you use, you know, just pure automatic enrollment for somebody who doesn't engage at all, but somebody who does, you know, raising the you know, instead of the kind of center stage effect with, you know, the vast majority of people, when you give them three choices, they pick the one in the middle. So, you know, rather than putting default rates at, let's say, four, six or eight percent, if you put it at eight, 10 or 12, like that's another way I think that we're starting to see some evolution in the industry. But, you know, framing is so important when it comes to helping guide people's choices, not in a heavy handed like gun to their head way. But that that framing effect is so critical as really choice architects that we have. You're a fiduciary to your plan. I'm actually a fiduciary to, to you know, to our plan and, and the people that we serve and that we work with is really helping them embrace that idea that, you know, there is no neutral decision that you make. You are, are shaping and pushing people one way or the other, no matter what you decide. So it makes sense. I love what you said years ago at that conference is that doing what's best, thinking about what's best for the people that you serve is always defensible. That's a, that's a really great insight. What, what do you see? So, so let's dive into this kind of survey a little bit that, that you guys did. And, and you did it at the beginning of 2020. So just kind of at the, and I think you said this is, I think it's the eighth year that you've done this. And you did it at an interesting time at the beginning of COVID and whatnot. What were some of the most interesting insights that came out of, let's say, this year's survey relative to other years from your perspective? You know, we started this study back in 2013, and we only surveyed at that time, the first year, pre-retirees. So individuals between 55 and 65 are still working full-time. And we wanted to, to really explore hindsight. We wanted, we wanted to explore, like, what did they see as they look back? And we heard this overwhelming sense of regret. I wish I would have st- saved earlier. I wish someone would have told me to save more. I wish I would have been more thoughtful about my budget. You know, I don't have a, I don't have as much to show for it. it. It was, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. So the next year we explained that all the way to 25 year olds, a 65 year old. So we've continued to, to just continue to explore that, that sense. And that regret has come up every single year, regardless of age group. And the, the period of time for which people say they have the most regret, Josh, 
is the first five years they're working. First five years. So, and that's to people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And what they get there is that they understand, to your point about knowledge, they understand the power of compounding. They understand the math. They understand the math. Like if I started, you know, early enough, it would have had more time to grow, blah, blah, blah. So they, they get that. But what's really behind that too, is they understand their own habits and their own tendencies. So just like whether you're talking about diets or exercise, if you're in a good habit, you will continue to be in good habit. And that's what people said. If I would have started earlier, I wouldn't have fallen out of that, that pattern. So they really do speak to that, which I think is, 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 is really, really interesting. They also said that from a, from a saving perspective and through their plan at work, again, this is one of the most important benefits that they have. It is highly valued, extremely amenable to nudges, to, to, to defaults, all of that, you know, lines up because it is such an important goal. So nearly everyone said retirement was the top if not one of the most important goals um, that they had. The other thing that we've heard with respect to regret over time, and this has been consistent, and I was completely surprised the first time we asked this. We asked people what their biggest personal regret was. Number one was not saving more for retirement ahead of not doing better in my personal relationships, not doing better with my career, and not being a better person overall. <laughs> so I, that's a pretty strong sense of regret. And again, we've heard that all eight years that, that we've done this study. But we've also heard, you know, a couple, a couple of little like nuances I will throw out with respect to plan design. I think it is interesting, but this may have some implications for, for organizations that are looking at how they allocate their compensation and benefits dollars. So given a choice, and again, this is sort of a false choice because you really can't do this, but we asked people, if you had the choice of a, of a 100% match on 3% of your contributions or a high, 3% higher salary, 70% of people took the match over the cash. And then we upped that and we asked, okay, what if it was 6%, 100% match at 6% for your 401k plan or 6% higher salary? It was still 65% of people would take the match. And I think that goes back to our discussion about regret in those first five years of people recognizing their own habits and tendencies. If it hits my wallet, it's gone. If it stays in my account, it stays there. And I think that is really, you know, I'm, it's obviously not something, you know, it's not, again, it's a false choice. But if an organization is, is if they're making decisions around compensation and benefits, really sweetening the deal on the retirement side is really valued because it's, it's, it is valued so much from the participant perspective, whether they're going to articulate that in that circumstance, they certainly have shared that with us. And it can be in, in that case. And, and I'd like the, if you ask somebody, do you want more? The answer is always going to be yes. But if you introduce, right, trade-offs, because that's really what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You could either have, you're getting 3% either way. Do you, you know, do you want it in the plan and kind of hands off or do you want it, you know, in your bank account and hands on. And so it really could be a cost neutral event for a plan sponsor, potentially like, do, are they really, you know, they're going to be spending, let's just say 3% either way, if they're going to do that, it's just which account do you want it deposited in? So that's actually an interesting finding. Were there any other things that you found like when making trade-offs, were there any other questions or, or that were geared around 
those types of trade-offs? Yeah. So I think one of the, uh, you know, a, cu- a couple things I want to throw out. One, you know, we talked about defaults a little bit earlier and, you know, 70%, again, to your point, they, they were amenable to automatic enrollment at 6%. So, you know, the national average remains three. Nobody yeah. believes saving 3% for retirement is going to get you there. Right. So very receptive to that higher initial rate. But from, uh, you know, a look forward point of view, eight in 10 participants said that they would be interested in, and would welcome a retirement income solution inside their plan. So I think that's interesting and certain, certainly something that the industry and plan sponsors should be looking at is there's so much discussion on what those products look like and that from a participant point of view, that sort of implied endorsement testimonial from an employer still really matters. Like So, so as, as participants are saying, this retirement plan is one of the most important benefits that I have. I'm looking to my employer to set up these sort of bumpers or these guide guidelines or guardrails, if you will, for how I'm saving and investing with defaults. They're also kind of continuing it forward saying, I, I would welcome that to drawing out. So certainly something to think about as the industry continues to innovate and discuss around retirement income from a participant point of view look to that. Most participants said that they do, you know, today they roll over to to a rollover IRA, but they would appreciate the opportunity to leave it in the plan. Right. Obviously with the Secure Act and, you know, kind of this this focus on guaranteed income and Obviously, the insurance industry is very excited about uh, what that looks like. And I still think we're in the first or second inning, maybe not even. We might still be in, in spring training, if you will, around what those solutions are going to look like. But mm-hmm. interesting that you 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 had a or, or people expressed kind of a high preference for guaranteed income solutions. Was that had you asked that in previous years? I'm just curious. Do you this think that a- was influenced by when you did you did the survey? Was this the first this is, year that you did it? This is the first time that we asked that question. And so to, just to okay. continue on with your point about, about doing the survey. So we usually feel this every February, March. We feel this study in early March. So we, it was concluded, I think, literally the day that the global pandemic was set. So we had, we had done. So, so there is, we were in, to your point, of, I'll use the baseball analogy. We were, you know, getting ready to go to spring training when, when this was fielded. So, so I think there's some real things to, to, for us to poke at, I think, I think next year, like, for example, even a discussion, one of the things that we asked among our groups of, of, of workers. So this is the first year we divided our sample set into really the three generations who make up the U S workforce. So millennials, Gen Xers um, and baby boomers. And when we asked them, what are they most looking forward to in retirement? Far fewer said travel this year than they hadn't said than they had said in past years. So I think an appropriate inference there is that that is related directly to the pandemic. So people were starting to go, I'm not getting on a plane. You know, like that was kind of before right. we really couldn't get yeah. on a plane. So I think that that a little bit is built into that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. You know, who knows where we are next year when you do it, or a couple of years out. But you know, kind of the noise to signal ratio, if you will, over time. Obviously, recency bias. If we're talking about kind of behavioral economics, you know, when you nobody's getting on an airplane, kind of the idea of travel. I also wonder too if, like, the guaranteed income could that be influenced in part by just the market volatility within the first part of the year and those gyrations. And you know, obviously, you know, I've always I had Aaron Klein who's the CEO of Riskalyze, which is a, a risk alignment tool, a fintech tool. He was on a couple of episodes ago and, you know, he had a, we were talking about 
you know, the qualitative assessment of people's risk capacity versus the quantitative and that, you know, qualitatively used a great analogy. He said that, you know, some days he feels like his house is the perfect size for him. And some days he feels like it's too small. And sometimes he feels like it's too big. And so I think the point we were talking, I thought that was a really good way to kind of frame it is that when markets are really volatile, people probably their risk tolerance qualitatively goes down. Whereas when markets are going gangbusters, their risk tolerance probably goes up as well. So it'll be interesting to see maybe in future years, if you do this survey in perhaps less volatile times around guaranteed income, kind of what that, you know, what that, what those preferences look like. But that I'm surprised that 80%, that's a pretty high number. That's a, that's a really interesting data point that came back. Were you surprised by that? I was surprised at how high it was, but if you look in a vacuum, if you just looked at the question, but if you look at that sort of you know, evolution of the role of the employer from a participant point of view, it does make sense. Because what what they're saying is I, I am placing a premium on the influence of my employer on this jury. So so from that perspective, it, it aligns perfectly. So so they're saying, okay, that's the next thing. The next thing I'm going to need help with is living off what I've accumulated. So it makes sense to to go there. So it does from that that point of view make sense. Okay. What did you see in terms of, you know, there's obviously, you know, our survey that we did was was similar. It was really three dimensions. We did it across gender. We did it across age. We had three cohorts as well. And then we actually did it across income. And when you apply those different dimensions to the answers and preferences and attitudes, some really fascinating things tend to come out that, that it's not kind of a one size fits all approach. What did you find just you know, one of the things we found was that people who made less than $50,000 a year and, and women were actually probably the two most at risk when it came to financial wellness and well-being. We saw financial stress levels being much higher kind of from that perspective. What were some of the things you guys found? Let's talk about gender. What were some of the differences you found between how women responded to your survey and how how men responded? And, and what do you think plan sponsors can maybe take away? How did it, how to address the unique needs and preferences of, of men versus women? The, the biggest area where we saw, you know, gender differences was with respect to risk. So we have asked about risk for a couple of years now. And so we specifically asked about four definitions of risk or four dimensions, if you will, of risk. So we've looked at market risk. So the, the ups and downs, if you will, longevity risk. So the risk of running out of money, in retirement, or, or as my dad always tells me, he wants to run out of breath and money at the same time. So what he always says, inflation or interest rate risk. So those macroeconomic factors, and then finally growth risk. So that is simply not hitting a certain you know rate of return that I need. Last year, longevity risk came out as number one, you know, across the board, which people were most worried about. This year, we saw a flip to market risk, and why is that? Because we were asking questions right at the height of newfound volatility, right? That, 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 is, that is what we were experiencing. However, when we look at gender, men were more likely to worry about growth risk. So overall, it, it is market. We flipped from longevity to market. Men were more likely to worry about growth risk or not meeting a certain rate of return. Women, however, still said they were more likely to worry about longevity risk. They were still worried about running out of money. And, and, and to your point about Women in Financial Wellness, I think a really interesting study to look at is McKinsey's Women in the Workplace. And it just came out about a month ago, and it's making a lot of the, the, the national news about how many women are, if they haven't already, are looking to 
come out of the workforce because of the responsibilities related to schooling, caregiving in light of the pandemic. So I think that is a really critical area to look at because then now we are in worse shape sometime down the road as so many women have have exited the workplace and not being able to save for retirement as a result. It, it, it exacerbates the issue in a lot of ways, right? If you do kind of see that exodus. And I guess it's not surprising, you know, I, I, I think we found similar data. And I think across the industry is men like to, it seems like behaviorally, again, this is a bit of a generalization, but like they like to focus on investments and tinker with investments. I've, I've always said, I think women are, they're much more measured and, and they tend to be probably better investors. I actually think there's some data I've read before that, that showed that, that women probably are, are more successful investors than men. But obviously with longer life expectancies for women, you know, longevity risk is, is, I'm not surprised that that is a higher, a higher issue for them or a higher area of focus than you know, it sounds like growth risk is more of like, what type of return maybe did I earn in my portfolio? Is that, that kind of the thrust of that question? Okay. Got it. How do you see, and I looked a little bit at, at the survey. One of the things that, that stuck out to me was expectations, if you will, general, generationally. So that the difference in expectations between call it, you know, millennials versus Gen X versus baby boomers, what did that look like? And, and how did you, how did that data kind of tease out and, and what, what the expectations amongst the different age groups or populations, what did that look like? Yeah, you know, so it's so interesting. So so when we, I'm going to step back a little bit. When we did our first study back in 2013, again, just of retirees, so 55 to 65, less than half a percent of respondents expected their standard of living to be much better than it is right now in retirement. So when it crept up to 2%, you know, like a year later, two years later, I think it was, it was 2%, you know, it was still just, you know, really inconsequential, like of, of what people think. And you could say that it's probably more real to them because they're doing the calculations and starting that process and they know what it looks like. So today in 2020, only one in 10 baby boomers feels that their standard of living will be, will be better in retirement. They'll be better off. So one in 10, which is better than it was before, but it's still, still pretty, pretty, pretty low. Gen Xers, it's about 27%. And what Gen Xers also shared with us too, they kind of fall into that sandwich generation. These are people who have, you know, kids in college are taking care of their parents too. I mean, there are all their financial responsibilities. About half of millennials. And I think it's really important for, you know, people that millennials are 40. So I think sometimes we, we jump, we, we, I think generalize and we put that Gen Z group with millennials and they're not the same, you know, they're not the same millennials or have their own households, you know, they're, they're, they're 40, but about half of them think that their standard of living will be better off. So, so there, so time may, may be at play there. So they've got, they've got that benefit of what's ahead of them, but, but baby boomers are doing the calculation, you know, right now. So that's really what, what they see. So we get more pessimistic as we uh, as we approach yeah. the, the finish or, line. You know, That's what it, it like. might be a little re- realistic. Re- re- reality too, sets yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, but I also yeah. think the you know it's reality interesting. Reality starts I, to set in. I will say, you know, interesting what people's expectations are in terms of of, of of standard of living. I think this to me has real implications on the messages, like the visuals, the words. Yeah, I come from a communications background, so so the visuals, the words, how we we present retirement going forward, the couple on the beach and the sailboat and the golf course. And that, that is not the image, although it's a very stereotypical image, 
for most working Americans, their vision is to be able to spend time with my family, live in my same house, not be a financial burden on, on, on the rest of my family. That is not the same as what those images portray. So what, what, what participants are really looking for is independence, not affluence. And that is a, a big difference in how we talk about retirement. So because, you know, putting that sort of very extravagant lifestyle, you might as well put you know, a rocket to the moon there or something. It, it, it is, it just creates a bigger chasm for participants. And we did that for a long time. Like ever, how many brochures and things we did had this sort of, you know, this, this, this dream. And it, that's not what it's about. It's about independence. Like I want to be able to have three squares a day to spend time with my family, to not have the, uh, a, a, not be a financial bur- burden, to not, to not, be in a, in a wor- place of worry. And that's just different. And it's not, you know, I, I've, I shared that information sometimes with, with a group of, of creative people and they were like, oh, that's kind of depressing, but it's not depressing. It's not depressing. It is, it is still a very comfortable, familial sense, but I think it's something that's really important that we, we, we are aware of the difference between independence and affluence. So one of the things I do with with the podcast, I do show notes and some of the things that that you've referenced, definitely like that McKinsey study that'll be going in there and, and you know, there'll be links to obviously find and, and connect with you as well. But one of the, the the sections on the website and the show notes is ideas worth sharing. And so I quote, I typically pull quotes out. And so that that independence, not affluence is definitely making kind of an idea to share because that is an interesting that 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 is an interesting kind of reframing of expectations, you know, for people. And not in bad. some cases, it's interesting you mentioned, no, no, not, not at all. Bad. And, and yeah. you know, there was, uh, I would agree. I would agree that in, I think it speaks to a couple of things. One, in my, in my book, I highlight a study that was done about a decade ago by a guy named Hal Hirschfeld. And, you know, he, he really wanted to, to see how people responded to retirement savings and he used kind of digital avatars. And I've talked about this on a, a, another another episode as well. But what he found was that people's ability to make decisions currently is is highly impacted by the connection that they feel with the future. And so when people feel disconnected from their future self, it's hard for them to make decisions that long-term decisions. And so, and also that if they're presented with somebody who's just older, but, but there is no connection, it's not them, like it doesn't impact them. So when you see the, the really attractive silver haired couple running down the beach hand in hand, that doesn't move people to make decisions because they have no connection with those folks. And so that's a, a really interesting point that I think you, you know, that you bring up. And, and that even goes back to communications. Like, how are we presenting information to people? And I think it speaks to personalization. That's one of the things I think we're starting to see across the industry is that people want, whether it's advice, whether it's information, it needs to be personalized. It, it can't be generalized. Is that something that that came across as well, do you feel like, in, yeah. in some of the research and, and data what, that you guys have done? And I think what, what people say, too, is that they're looking for familiarity. So to your point about, about what feels real or what, what's connected. And that is what, you know, we've seen over the years, especially as you're looking at, to your point about personalization, you're looking at multicultural communications. You need to really resonate with the audience. Are you using examples and images that really are appropriate? So you mentioned advice, a perfect example that came up 
in the study this year between men and women is even what they're looking for in advice. Women were more likely to be comfortable with an online experience, whereas men wanted the face-to-face experience. And what was underneath that was a perceived cost that women were more conscious of, am I paying more for a face-to-face experience or personal experience than online, which I think is interesting. So I, I think, you know, to your earlier point, if you're looking at, if you kind of thread that with longevity risk, running out of money, that sort of being more conscious of that, I think that that comes out. But to your point, you know, we, we have wrestled with the whole personalization, customization thing for years. And, and it is that continued trade-off of, of data and information, like where, where, where our comfort level is and where our comfort level isn't in terms of, of sharing that. But I think one of the most important things that we've been working on for a decade or so is even around a lifetime income illustration that, and so many record keepers, you know, have already done this and already do this, is translating an account balance into something more tangible is so helpful, you know, because, and we did studies about this 20 years ago. So you say to someone who's in their late 20s, that they're on track to have a million dollars in retirement, that feels like a lottery win. And then when you redo the calculation and you're like, oh, it isn't, you know, that's a whole different, you know, so I always tell people that that probably, so you're talking about personalization, customization. To me, that is, that is still the most important thing is, is that account balance, you know, what does it mean? Whether, you know, monthly is certainly annual income is appropriate because I know that, like, I know, we all know what we make, quote unquote, what we live on. So if you you are currently living on, you know, $30,000 a year, and it says that you're on track to have, you know, 29, okay, I'm good. You know, I'm comfortable. But if you're living on, you know, $500,000 a year, and you're going to be on track to 40, that is a whole different discussion. So to me, that is still like the ultimate of, of personalization, customiz- customization is providing that context on your account balance. So. Yeah. And that, that, I think that's a great point. You know, it, you know, think about when you buy a house. I remember I bought my first house. I was 26 years old and you think about the payment, like what monthly payment can I afford? I remember when I was signing all the paperwork and I was like, well, what is that number? And there's like, well, that's what you're going to pay over the life of the loan. And I almost had a heart attack, you know, at, at 26 <laughs> years old. But I saw that, how big that number was. But, you know, to your point, you know, we've conditioned people to think about account balance, right? Accumulation, how much money we have. But when it's not translated, that's not how people live their life. They know what they pay every month in a car payment or in a mortgage or rent payment or what's my cell phone bill costs. And, you know, how much do I spend on groceries? So, you know, and I, I am hopeful. I do think. You know, one of the challenges, and and we're starting to see this with technology, but, you know, the ability to aggregate financial data so that there's more inputs into what that calculation looks like and just really start to kind of fine tune that. You know, one of the things that that we found in the Seeking Clarity survey last year was that only 26% of people actually used a financial advisor. And not surprisingly, only 24% of people had a written financial plan. And yet 45% of people admitted to experiencing regular financial stress. And I surmise my hypothesis is the reason that people are stressed is because, you know, they don't have, they don't have a plan. And I don't think it's an industry we've done a great job yet of how do we scale really comprehensive planning to the masses, to the vast majority of Americans. It's something that has been available for, quite frankly, high net worth 
investors and people who have the money to pay for it, you know, as you as you were talking about, you know, with men versus women and virtual versus in person. But I'm hopeful that over the next five to 10 years with technology, we're going to be able to scale and deliver planning to the masses. Uh, that's not someplace that I think we've or what we've achieved yet. Oh, I think you're you're absolutely right, because there is still this even when there are opportunities or access to some online you know, holistic advice. So the challenge is, is getting participants to, to personalize right. that experience, right? That's still, I think that last number I saw was about 20% of people will actually go through that exercise, right? Because it's only as good as what you put in. But I think the, the, the issue is, and your point about financial stress and this year is, is prime example, but who, you know, who could have possibly surmised a year ago that this is what, this is what we would be, would be living. But we, we don't make financial decisions in a vacuum. We don't. They, they're, they're all related. So whether you're saving for retirement and your kid's college or paying off your own student loan debts at the same time, you've been furloughed, whatever that looks like, all those, they're all related. And, and I think we tend to compartmentalize it in, in our industry. But to your point, it has to be looked at comprehensively. So you're in the the, the unique position of both working in this industry and supporting plan sponsors and clients. You also happen to be, I believe, the chair of the American Century Retirement Plan Committee. So you are a fiduciary. So you're in this interesting, this isn't theory and hypothetical. This is this is real world stuff. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we get there, as someone, and going back to that quote that, you know, to the effect of, you know, thinking about and doing what's in the best interests of, of participants is always defensible. What would be kind of your prescription for fellow plan fiduciaries and plan sponsors and committee members in terms of how to optimize their retirement plan from an automatic features perspective? You know, thing one is saving, 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 saving. So, so the, you know, you've got to implement automatic enrollment above 3%, like not in the example in the regs, right? You've got to start, you've got to start higher. So I can tell you how we implemented it. We start automatic enrollment at 5%. Why? Because our match is 100% on five. So we want to make sure all of our participants are getting the full advantage of the company match. And we do automatic escalation to 15. So if you're going to do automatic enrollment, you've got to do automatic escalation. And going even further and something that we've done is we do an automatic Sweet. So when we next week when we do our open enrollment for for health benefits, any participant who's not saving five percent will automatically automatically be swept in at five percent setting on January one. So we make everybody every year have to opt out, just like we do with our health insurance. So I heard someone say one time that you know no investment is going to make up for a bad saver, right? I mean that's that's. Yeah. You can't you, you can't, can't invest your way out of the savings. Right. Deficit. Right. So it's so you've got to you've got to start early, and I do think. I do think that, you know, thanks to, to the Pension Protection Act and the high adoption of automatic enrollment that we're seeing across the country, I actually think that Gen Z, so our 20s, our 20, 20 something, we're actually going to be on track to be way better off because they're all being defaulted into saving. Right. So my own daughter, she's 24 and she started saving with her very first paycheck, which came, you know, two weeks after she graduated from college and she's saving 10%. So in her, in her, 401k plan. And, you know, she showed me her balance. She said, "Is this is pretty good, right? I said, yeah, yeah you betcha. And now what you're not going to do is you're not going to touch it, you know, and just leave it. But I think, I think that generation, I think that Gen Z is really 
the group that's getting the full benefit of, of automatic enrollment and escalation. So I think that that is, yeah. I think that that is, that to me is thing one is what I would, you know, if I were to have, if I had my magic wand and told Larry Plain sponsor, automatically enroll everybody, put automatic escalation in, make it hard for them not to save. And set the cap high. No question. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that just about the good fortune of Gen Z of coming into the workforce at a time when we're seeing much more wholesale adoption. I think we still have a pretty long ways to go. I know, I think finance, I, I said this, I think in another podcast, the financial wellness is really sexy. And I think a lot of plan sponsors are kind of feeling like they've checked the, the box around like fiduciary and funds and plan design and fees. I'm not sure I totally agree with that. And I still think at the end of the day, the most important set of decisions that a plan sponsor can make for their people is going to be around plan design. Because to your point, from a savings perspective, and Gen Z coming into the workforce when you know plan design, automatic plan design has been kind of in favor is really going to help them. And it's interesting, this idea of regret. I wonder longitudinally if that generation, call it 20 years from now, when they look back, if they're going to have some of the same regrets that, you know, maybe baby boomers or Gen X do around, I wish I would have started earlier, started earlier because essentially they've started right away because their companies, hopefully they've been smart enough to get them, to get them into the plan. No, you're, you're so. absolutely right. I, I met with a, uh, this is years ago, I met with a plan sponsor who wanted, and I was doing participant communications on the plan. And he said, I want, I want higher participation rate. I want higher deferral rates. And I want better asset allocation. And I said, well, let's look at auto features first. So like forget it. And, and, you know, I said, because a nice brochure or website or employee meeting, all of it, like none of that is going to do what your plan design can do to say, to, to address all those things. So, and I'm, I'm undercutting right. my entire career with that statement, but it's, it, you know, communications and education will not solve for your plan design. Well, and I think that's the important point, right? What are you trying to solve for? Like that, that if you're trying to solve for, call it low utilization rates, like the right tool for the job is in communications. It's automatic features. If you were trying to solve for better understanding of benefits, communicating to your people that you, you know, you care about them, helping them be aware and take advantage of all the different benefits that are available to them. If that's what you're trying to solve for, I think that's where the communications piece comes in. But I often find plant sponsors, they, they're able to diagnose, but they think the wrong, they, they, they prescribe for themselves or they want you to prescribe them. The, the wrong medicine, if you will, given what's been diagnosed. Right. I mean, you can use communications. I, I tell a plan sponsor, use it to be very surgical about something you specifically want to do. So, you know, this year, like what if, what if you've had, you know, loans creeping up, like you have more people taking loans one year of another. Okay. Let, let's, let's talk about that. Let, let's focus on that. But that, that core participation, deferral rates and, and asset allocation, what design solve that? Right, right. Be very surgical with your communications. That's another idea to share. You, you know, you're on fire, Diane. You're on fire. That's going in the show notes too. Okay, so let's transition. And and you know, one of the things that I I I'll just frame this really quick. And I, I I'm really interested in your experiences. So you know, as you had mentioned, as we talked about, you are the chair of the American Century Retirement Plan. And a few years ago, you guys were actually subject to a, a lawsuit 
by your employees around excessive, the, the kind of the playbook that's been in the industry, excessive fees and proprietary investments and so on and so forth. And you were actually personally named as a defendant in that, that lawsuit. So I'll skip ahead really quickly is you guys were successful in defending yourselves, which is, which is a rarity, quite frankly. And uh, I can't wait to talk a little bit about that, but just from the outset, what did it feel like when you got news that you guys had been named and that you had been named personally? So we knew it was coming. So, and I can, I can go back in time. So I was scrolling through my Facebook feed one evening in 2015 and there was a sponsored post that said something to the effect of, you work at American Century, you may have been harmed in your retirement plan, click here. So I took a screenshot the next morning, ran into our in-house counsel's office, who's a dear, dear friend, you know, shaking as I was holding her, I was showing her my phone. And I was obviously one of many, many, many people who's, who, who received that post. So there were both Facebook and LinkedIn solicitations, so paid posts, anyone who had the name of our company in their in their profiles. So that's how it came about. So with that happening, we we had an inclination was coming. I received a call from our in-house counsel. I will on the day the case was filed, June 30th, 2016. I'll never forget it. I was standing in my kitchen, called on my cell phone. We talked for a few minutes. I hung up the phone and I burst into tears. So that tells you exactly what that felt like. It was heartbreaking because I'm speaking for everyone on the committee, I'm sure. But this is what I do for a living. And and I have worked on plans and with plans, you know, across the country, varying sizes, but with, you know, participant experience and and weighing in on on plan design and then trying to ensure that all these people have a really good chance of of being successful to retire when they want with how much they need. And the idea that in this plan, which is comprised of people I work with, like my colleagues, my friends, people I genuinely care about, that I was not acting on their behalf was, 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 you know, indescribable to me. I couldn't get over it. You know, it it was absolutely, I took it very personally. And it was, you know, my integrity was being challenged. And, you know, that that's what it feels like. I mean, that's exactly what it feels like. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it was, there's no way to take it other than personally. And so there's no way to take it other than personally. So, and I, I, I can totally, obviously I can't relate to that, but, but can see that. And I think that's, you know, a lot of times most of the, the, the plan sponsors and committee members that I've had a chance to work with over my career, they take this really seriously and they, they do it because they care about their people and they're, they're trying to make decisions that are in the best interest. And, you know, I can imagine you and the other committee members were probably nameless to whoever clicked on that ad and, and, and filed it, but I can understand and imagine kind of what the, you know, what the heartbreak and frustration and probably the, the the different emotions that, that you go through. So you guys knew it was coming. It finally happened. What did you do? As I mentioned, you were successful. And, and, you know, the reality I I highlighted, I have a whole chapter of litigation trends in, in my book, the fiduciary formula and highlight a lot of the big cases that have been settled or, or adjudicated over the past, call it 10 or 12 years. And, Financial services firms, obviously, being being focused on as well. You're one of the few. You're one of the few companies that have been able to successfully defend yourself. And so, why why was that? What did you do? How did you game plan? How did you prepare? So, a couple things I, I will point out. One, I think, is really important. The work of the committee continued, separate and apart from the case. So, we kept on 
you know, keep it on, you know, in, in after the case was filed. So one of the examples I will give is we had already started some discussions around doing a qualified default investment alternative re-enrollment, a QI re-enrollment. So, you know, I've worked with, you know, many, many plans over the years where we, we've looked at how at participants' equity exposure against their age. And, and we did the same for our, our plan. And, and we had made a decision as a committee. We said, we want to do a QI re-enrollment for two reasons. We've got, you know, as, as, we, as we expected, we had a number of participants close to retirement with high equity exposure. So what we didn't know was why. Was that, was that by intention? Did, did those participants say, yes, I want, I want that exposure? Or was it inertia? So back to you know, our behavioral finance, did people make a decision 20 years ago and never rebalance? So we then created the event in which we told our participants, unless you tell us otherwise, your current account balance and your future contributions will be defaulted into the target date portfolio that most closely matches the year in which you will turn 65. We had an unusually high opt-out rate because what we found is people absolutely wanted the choices they had made, but we got the affirmation of that, right? So we, we received the affirmation that, yes, I intended that. So that to me is a really good example of, of progressive element in the toolbox of a plan sponsor and a committee that we continued ahead while this case was going on. We were in the opt-out window while we were in court. I was on the stand on the last day of the opt-out window testifying. You know, so, so I think it's important to note that you know, what we did is we kept doing what we were supposed to do with respect to the plan. But you know, in working with, with counsel, there was a period of court-ordered mediation. I was not there. I'm told the meeting was pretty quick. That We just felt that our process was defined, our our committee documents that the, the period of time was any time on or after June 30th of 2010. It was filed on June 30th of 2016. That over that six-year period to that point, all the documents, all the information was very good historical record of the work of the committee. The, the decisions that were at hand, the process that was followed, the deliberations of the committee, that that was all laid out in, in good order. You know, as an employee, I was I was felt very supported that the organization said, you know, we're we're going forward to defend ourselves. I totally get, you know, to your point, Josh. You know, in a lot of financial services firms, the by and large, the majority of these cases have been settled, and I I, I would assume that that's a big decision to make internally and one that's weighed right in terms of of right. resources and expense and you know I. I totally see how that is a, a decision that is not taken lightly, you know, and, and, and all, many factors have to be weighed. But where I sat, I felt very supported that the organization said, you know, we, we have faith in the, the decisions our committee has made, the process they followed, and we will defend that. And, and that was really extremely gratifying, but also a big relief, obviously, when we got the decision from the judge. And, you know, his right. opinion, you know, he just called out the process that, that, that we had followed in that we were deliberative and thoughtful and, you know, prudent. I mean, that the, the, we, we, are, we are acutely aware of the gravity that comes with the decisions that we make. What's your philosophy on minutes? Obviously, that is, you know, it, 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 minutes are something that it's, it's simple. It's just not easy more often than not. And it's not an active 
volition. It's an act of omission. A lot of times there isn't a good record. I would imagine you guys were pretty buttoned up from a, from a minutes perspective or whether it's memos, whatever it was that kind of outlined, not just what decisions you made, but perhaps the line of thinking around how you came to those conclusions. Is that a fair statement? And what's your philosophy overall in terms of documenting the decision-making process? So I joined the committee, just for context, I joined the committee in 2014. I became the chair in 2017. Again, the case started June 30th, anytime after June 30th of 2010. So I came into a structure related to the minutes that that had already been in place and been in place for a long time. So we are very fortunate. A member of our legal department, a paralegal, does our minutes you know, for us, which is extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. So they should have someone extremely knowledgeable. So I think in any organization of having... The, the the right person with the right expertise who's charged with taking minutes. I mean, it's not the same as taking minutes for, you know, a volunteer organization you're a part of. You know, I, I think about all my, the minutes that my, I've written my home, in my, my home, career. Yeah, it's it's not taking minutes the minutes of uh, your home association. Right. It's not the same. So and I've, I've taken plenty of minutes, not not right. in this context. But they, they what they are, you know, they're, you know, they're not a transcription of the discussion. It's, you know, it's not a deposition. However, they are very clear with respect to the issue at hand, the deliberation, you know, what the, the, the questions are, the discussion, and the next steps. So there, there are minutes when, when there's an issue and the next step is, you know what, we need this one other thing. Like I need this other piece of information. So the next steps are, you know, Diane Gallagher will, will get the answer to this question and call an ad hoc meeting to make the decision. And then the meeting, the minutes of the ad hoc meeting show this was the follow-up and this was the decision. So all the meeting minutes, if you kind of put them all out in, in a chronological order, it's a story. Like this was a decision. This was an issue. This is, you know, the resolution. And I think that is just really, really helpful. So, so someone new coming into the committee or someone come in and can sit down and read several years of minutes and get the picture and get what, what transpired in terms of, of, of the work of the committee. Yeah, that's one of the things we recommend to new committee members when they come on board is, hey, we're going to give you all the minutes, you know, from every meeting and it's going to give you a body of work so you can kind of come up to speed and understand, you know, how did the plan arrive where it is now, what you're stepping into and where did it kind of come from and what, what was what was the thought process over time? How did you prepare to be cross examined just out of curiosity? Like what what did you do to prepare for that? I see the look on your face right now. We're doing video right now, but but I can see. I hope I'm not bringing up recurring nightmares for you. But like, oh. what did you do to prepare for cross exam? I spent a lot of time with with our lawyers too. I spent a lot of time, so <laughs> a lot of time in in preparation. So I knew, you know, you know, kind of the line of questioning, you know, that that we would expect. So just for 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 context, I as the committee chair, I served as the corporate representative at the trial. So I sat at the defense table with all of our lawyers, the duration of the trial. And then I was the last fact-based witness. So I took the stand the last week of the trial. And I actually was only on the stand about an hour and a half, maybe hour, hour and a half. So not, not a super, super long time. It seemed like days, but I really wanted, if you actually looked at your watch, it wasn't as long as I felt like. <laughs> You know, I knew we had many, many hours of of meetings and preparation around around you know expect these types of questions. 
organizations expect this to be challenged. And and I testified, you know, at, at trial, I talked about the QDIA re-enrollment because that opt-out window was going on. I talked about that at the trial, but I was asked a lot of questions about my own experience with respect to participants, a lot of the, the research we did. So here's a perfect example. A presentation I had given about our research was, was an exhibit, for example, and it's it was a PowerPoint. It was a printout of a PowerPoint that had animation in it and bills. So there was one slide that was pulled out, for example, that I would ask question about that had kind of a contrary view, contrarian view, because the next slide with the click had the big reveal. So what was pulled out was just the first one. So I, I you know, we had a hunch that was going to be a question. So I said, well, yeah, this is what that said. But for a fact, the next slide <laughs> covered this. The next slide wasn't in the exhibit. So just to give, and it wasn't like a trick or anything, but it was just something that I had to be prepared to say, oh, that one thing didn't tell the whole story. It had nothing to do with the plan. It had to do with the conference speech I had given. But I did testify to how that felt as a, you know, personally as being being a named defendant. So I will I will share this sort of, this is a, I think it's a funny story, I think now, but I testified the benefit of time, I imagine, and success makes this like funny stories, like yeah, right? Yeah, and it was not funny at the time. So, and I, so it was. I testified on a Monday of the last week of the trial, so September 2018. It was. A, in, I was testifying on a Monday, and on Sunday afternoon, the day prior, I was going to have my final preparations with our lawyers. My final before I was taking the stand, and I had gone to church with my family in the morning, and then I was going downtown in downtown Kansas city to do my, my final prep. So after church, I ran into the Starbucks nearby and I always know someone uh, when I run in there, always someone from my neighborhood, someone right here, always, 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 always. And I ran in there. My family was still in the car. I just ran in to get the drinks. And as I'm running out, I hear, hi, Diane. And I look over expecting it, of course, to be a friend that I know. And it is the lead plaintiff counsel was working at, you know, basically quote unquote, my Starbucks, you know, so nowhere near the hotel they were staying at, nowhere near the courthouse and had all of our, you know, binders out, like all the material, like at the table, at the big long table in Starbucks. And I said, hi. And he said, big day tomorrow. And I said, yeah. And I ran out (laughs) and, you know, got in the car and kind of unraveled a little bit with my family. And unbeknownst to me at that moment, my youngest daughter had her phone and was recording me kind of freaking out. (laughs) Why was he in my Starbucks? (laughs) Right, um, right. Which was sort of funny. So it was totally got in my head. um, So I needed to, but yeah, it was today. It was, it was funny. But when I got met with our lawyers, I was like, why was he there? They they kept saying, get it out of your head, get it out of your head. (laughs) Right, right. Trying to play mind games with him, you know, find out where. Uh, so who knows? He could have been staying nearby, which is funny. Kind of two, maybe final questions is number one is maybe the top two or three lessons you've learned going through that. You've been battle tested. And then also, you know, has that experience changed in any way how you approach being a committee member and and being a being the chair of the committee? What's what's changed, if anything, in terms of how you approach the job? So I will, I will answer the second part first and what has changed. I think all of us are acutely aware of the responsibility and the gravity of decisions. I will say it has just, if anything, put an exclamation point on 
the mechanics of how we operate as a committee. So our meeting dates are set in concrete. We don't miss them. We don't move them. <laughs> we don't miss them. Like they, they are, I candidly usually block my calendar 30 minutes either side of our meetings, just in case, you know, we, we, we need to go along or whatever. So, so I think it has given all of us an additional sense of responsibility for other committees, like for other, you know, if we are going to be held out that we went to trial and we were successful in defending ourselves, there's that much more responsibility that comes with that. Like we absolutely need to set, set that standard. So I feel like it just, it's, it's making us like sit up a little bit straighter, you know, that I think it's, 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 it, there was never a question about the intensity of the responsibility and what our charge was, but it certainly has added, you know, some sobering effect to it, if that, if that makes sense. From a little sidebar, I will say the little extra thing it has done, having gone through this process is I return a lot of emails with phone calls. So, so there's, you know, regardless, you know, not related to the plant, just in general, just in general. Is that just from a, is that, is that just from a discovery perspective exactly. and whatnot? As, as the lawyers told me, E stands for evidence. So I am just, I answer and I'm sure it makes some of my colleagues bananas that I, that I do that. So I, I do tend to, to, to answer questions. So, so that I would say we just, we always took, you know, always took the responsibility extremely seriously, but I think there's just an additional layer of, of, of gravity attached to that. I would say to, to your first part, I mean, the biggest kind of tip or lesson that I would share with committee members, and I was asked this one time by somebody from another organization had said, you know, I have someone who just wants to be on the committee. What should I tell them? And I said, make sure they understand <laughs> what being a fiduciary is. This isn't like to your point, like being asked to be up on the homeowners association, which is a huge headache right. in and of itself. But it isn't like, you know, it isn't, it isn't like that. It isn't like your volunteer kind of position. But I do think keeping, again, I'll say it again, that best interest of your participants at the forefront of your decisions gives you some clarity. And it, it, it really is a true north. And in our case, you know, we were accused of, of making decisions on behalf of the company versus our, our participants. A, it's not true, but B, we were able to prove it. And that, that, and why? Because we keep the best interests of participants at the forefront. And that just, I think, is just a really good anchor to keep with, with committees. And to your, you know, you have your meeting minutes reflect that too. It's in the best interest of the participants to do X or not do X, whatever that is. But I think, I think that, that, that punchline that attempting to do the right thing for your people is always defensible is a really good, really good mantra to follow. Right. I had mentioned that I had had Fred Reich on the podcast not too long ago. And, you know, he said something very similar. He said that, you know, at every meeting, say, how do we get a better outcome for the participants, whether it's lower costs or whether it's better investments, whether it's helping them save more through deferrals, whatever it is, how do we do what's best for participants? And he, he says, most of the litigation I see is where people weren't willing to ask that question about every issue and then they weren't taking the steps necessary to implement it. And what's best for participants is not what makes them happiest. happiest. It's tough love. And what produces the best results in terms of accumulating money for retirement. So don't worry too much about making people happy. Just worry about making things right. And so, you know, it, it, it sounds like you echo that statement almost, you know, almost to a T. 
I love that, that description from Fred. So I, I will happily steal it. Awesome. You know, my last couple of questions as, as we wrap up, and I've had such a good time with you today, and, and I think you have just really, really good insights and, and you communicate them well. How do you think over the next five to 10 years, though, how do you think the retirement industry is going to evolve? What do you think is going to be at the forefront? And, and where, as call it plan sponsors, where do you think plan sponsors need to go to kind of stay ahead of the curve and not get caught behind it? I think the biggest innovation or the biggest issue we are tackling, and we talked about this earlier, is really related to retirement income as we have, we're moving beyond accumulation to decumulation. So we are going to have to make sure that we have the full product suite, that there are regulations that are, that are laid out for plan sponsors, that we have plan sponsors who are willing to be a little progressive in, in, in trying to, to push the envelope and making those, those right decisions, like, like Fred said, and then maybe that's practicing some, some tough love. But I think that is the next thing we're going to have to really address because there is, you know, as, 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 as individuals are accumulating, you know, significant dollars, you know, we, I know they need, they're going to need to last decades. So again, it's not a lottery win, but it still is, is a significant amount of money the risk of making a bad move right when you have the, the highest number of assets is too great. So we have to, we have to, as plan sponsors, have those right sort of bumpers or guardrails up to help our folks navigate that transition. You know, and some of the research that you've done and, and going back to that tough love, people want that. It's, you know, I think from the, the research that you've done, right? Like people have said, like they, they know that they need that level of accountability. And I think, you know, when, when, when plan sponsors start to think more about the responsibility to, you know, their obligation to help their people retire successfully, and then recognize that most people, not everybody, but most people, like they want help. They want those nudges. They want that level of accountability. The more that we can embrace that, the more it's going to inform how we make decisions. So where can people go to connect with you or follow what you're up to at American Century? We will uh, put this in the show notes and whatnot, but what's the best way for people to to stay connected with you? So they can visit us at AmericanCentury.com. You can look me up on LinkedIn. Be happy to talk anytime about, about saving for retirement and how incredibly important that is for all American workers. Great. Well, thank you, Diane. It has been a true pleasure and I appreciate your insight so much and just really glad that you spent some time for for me and for our listeners on the Fiduciary You podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Diane Gallagher from American Century. I hope you enjoyed our discussion, her insights about participants' perceptions and attitudes, and hearing about her experiences as a named defendant in an ERISA lawsuit. I hope her story made you a smarter ERISA fiduciary and gave you hope that ERISA cases are actually winnable if you follow a good process. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. And make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, 
I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help other people find the show. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.